But in our passage in Matthew chapter 16, uh, we are going to be focusing on verses 13 through 23 as Lindsay read to us. And we see here in verse 13 a very specific place that Jesus goes to. It says that now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now I briefly hit this last week, but for the point of the sermon today, it is extremely important that I do some background work once again on the specifics of Caesarea Philippi in hopes that we can better and holistically understand um, who Jesus is and what he is doing inside of this passage. Uh, Caesarea Philippi uh, is about 25 miles north. I have a map picture, I think. Maybe I don't. I don't have a map picture. I took it out. Never mind. Um, so Caesarea Philippi, you've got the Sea of Galilee that's down here at the bottom, and you've got Caesarea Philippi that is in the north, okay? Um, Jesus has been crossing back and forth across this lake to and fro, doing ministry on both sides. Then he starts heading north, and these are Gentile areas and uh, we learned a few weeks ago that Jesus break down the, he breaks down these racial barriers uh, through the gospel, which in turn causes us to want to reflect also a desire to reach the nations with the gospel. But what's interesting about Caesarea Philippi, there are lots of things, but one of the things is the topography just in general. Jesus has all these people that are following him. They are all around him. They're going wherever he wants to go. He is the famous one. He is uh, the holy one. He has gotten a group of people. He is a star in this particular area and region. And yet Jesus is, is over and over again now trying to get away from the crowds. And the topography of this area, Jesus leads them from the Sea of Galilee north to the, the foothills of what's called now Mount Hermon. And in doing so, this elevation goes from the Sea of Galilee to 9,000 feet, okay? Now, I know when I lived in Arizona, we could go from the Phoenix Valley up to Sedona, and it was the difference between about, you know, almost below sea level, not, not exactly, but really low, um, to 7,000 in a car. And most of that traveling, you know, you're just thinking, I'm going up a forever hill, okay? Now, imagine Jesus and 12 disciples, and these are probably primarily teenage boys, Peter probably being the oldest of these young men, and you're walking 25 miles uphill to this city. And this is where Jesus is, for some reason, taking these men. Now, as I, I hinted about last week, um, Pania, uh, or Caesarea Philippi, the original name, it's had several names, was a major metropolis in the sense of not a, not a huge city, but it was a major stopping point for the, the worship of a god named Pan. And I do have a picture of Pan. Um, it took me a while to find one that was appropriate. This is Pan, you know, the flute boy goat. Um, that was worshipped. He is the God of the shepherds. He is the God of the farmers. He is the God of fertility. And so at this place called Panania or Caesarea Philippi, there were people that would come from all over the regions to go and to worship this God. And, and it was really on the side of a cliff on the foothills of Mount Hermon. If you go there today, this is what one of the areas looks like inside of where these people would worship. You kind of see these cutouts that are inside of there, these kind of inlays that are there, and they would put small statues of Pan, um, the goat man, god of fertility, um, to worship this individual, this god, this deity in this place. Um, there's also here a huge cave, and I've got a picture of it as well. Um, this cave, uh, initially, before an earthquake, uh, literally changed the platelets. Um, one of the, the founding streams, and during this time, it would have had, during the time of Jesus, it would have actually had water coming out of this 
cave that fed the Jordan. This is one of the beginning, this is the tailwaters here, or the, not the tailwaters, this is um, the, the, where the Jordan River begins is, is the coming of several small streams that meet in the middle, and that forms the Jordan River. And out of this cave is the beginning of one of those streams. It was believed, like this cave and other caves, that this was the gate to the underworld. That it was in places like this that literally uh, the gods, uh, the demons, uh, Pan and other gods could, could go back and forth from the earthly realm to the underworld. And it was at this place that Jesus brings this, these disciples. There were many temples. I've got one more picture. This is an artist's drawing of the different temples. So there's the cave I just showed you. There was a temple right there. There's the inlays right there. There was another temple that was eventually be, built to Caesar Augustus. Um, and then it, you can't hardly see it in this area, but to paint a picture without crossing too many boundaries here, um, Pan being the god of fertility, there was a much grotesque sexual immorality that took place here. Literally, in this kind of worship area over here, um, they had what they called sacred goats, where people would convene, like watching a movie, to watch these animals have sexual intercourse with each other. And then if you were struggling with fertility, or if your farm was, you could participate in those acts in hopes that the god Pan would bless you and your home or your barren wife or your farm, you engaged in those activities. This is where we get the, the English word panic from. It literally means from the god Pan. This is absolute immorality at its very best. This is Amsterdam on steroids. All right? This makes Vegas look like an elementary school. And people flocked to this. They believed it. They engaged in it. It was a, a very popular place among locals and travelers where they could uh, you know, participate in their indulgences and worship these gods and goddesses, um, believing that they would come out from the underworld right here in the side of this mountain. I don't know about you, but have you ever been in an awkward environment? Have you ever quickly realized you were somewhere where you did not need to be? Like that time when I was being a missionary in Minsk, Belarus, and I went into a pizza place, and there was naked women, and I'm not talking about drawings hanging on the wall, okay? And I'm supposed to be eating pizza. I had to leave. I did not stay in there. Uh, I know my struggles, I know my issues, it would just not have been a good place for me to rest with Playboy models hanging on the walls while I'm eating my pepperoni pizza. Awkward. Difficult. Jesus has just taken these kosher Jews to a strip club. All right? where there are far worse things than just dancing taking place. Why does he do this? Why does Jesus take these men to those places? We must remember that as Jesus is taking them, he could have taken them to sinful places very close, but for some reason Jesus takes these 12 men 25, up, 25 miles uphill to this Place. And we don't know if Jesus was standing right outside of the cave when he did this, but they knew what the area was, and they could probably at least see this cliff. And Jesus, why? What is he trying to reveal about himself? What is he trying to do in the making of these disciples? In verse 8, 
or let's read a little bit more here. And he said, uh, some may say that you're John the Baptist. He asked you to people say that I am. Some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? So he's asked the general public or he's asking his disciples what does the general public think? But more emphatically, Jesus says, who do you, 12 men, say that I am? And Simon Peter finally gets the right answer. He replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, what's interesting about this passage that we covered last week is this, is the, the magnitude of what Peter is saying, but also in verse 17, where we realize that Peter did not conjure up this right answer from his own heart and his own mind, but no, the Bible tells us that he conjures up this from the very Spirit of God, that it was what? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so we, we see the sovereign will of, of the, what we call illumination, that the Holy Spirit, for some reason on this moment, for God's intended purpose, speaks into his life and gives him this correct answer. And brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian in this place today, I want you to know that it was not because you had one ounce of goodness within you. No, it was because you were completely depraved. You were completely full of sin. You are hell-bent and loving it, yet God, who is rich in his mercy and lavish in his grace, has revealed the same truth that was revealed to Peter has been revealed to you and I, bringing much humility to us. And that's where we kind of ended last week, looking at the person and work of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, and the humility that it comes to us at the realization that our salvation does not come from ourselves, but it comes from him. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The first thing that we need to get this morning is this, is that Jesus will build his church. In verse 8, and I tell you, you are Peter. So Jesus kind of gives Peter, or, or either Peter is one of his names, um, and Jesus kind of now focuses in on that name, or literally we see Jesus giving Peter a nickname here. Jesus is, is, Peter's name is a play on the Greek, it's, it's Petros, and it literally means like small stone or pebble. It'd be like you calling your Bubba who went to Warren East, um, Rocky. So Jesus is calling this man named Simon Peter, also known in, in the language Cephas, which means Petros, this pebble, this rock. You are Peter, you are rock, you are stone. Jesus says this to him. And yet, this scripture, brothers and sisters, has, has caused much debate and even death amongst believers. Um, I, I do not want to slightly just kind of gloss over this. I do not want us to just gloss over this, but in being faithful and acknowledging this tension that is inside of this passage for probably at least 1,500 years. Um, from the Catholic perspective, um, Jesus looks at Peter. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my what? Church. From the Catholic perspective, Jesus establishes Peter as the first pope of the Catholic Church based on this passage. Thus, Peter is given the keys, uh, along with the lineage of the popes who follow him, to have the same authority as the Scripture. As Moses said in the Old Testament, so does Pope John, whatever he says, or whatever the name of the pope is at the current time, what they say and what the Bible says, whatever the current pope says, that is gospel. That is truth, and it is based on this current passage. They had the same authority. And according, you need to understand this, according to this perspective, you and I this morning, since we gather and 
a community church, since we gather in a Baptist church, since we gather in an Acts 29 church, since we just gather together as a church this morning, and we are not under the authority of the Catholic church, you must understand from the Catholic perspective that you and I are committing spiritual and biblical treason this morning. That is the way that they look at you and I. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you this, if they are right, then they have every right to be concerned for us. Because to be out from underneath the church means that you are out from underneath grace itself. You are out from underneath salvation. You and I are not saved this morning because we are not under the authority of the Catholic Church. That is what we are getting at here. This is, has caused, again, death amongst people who claim to be a part of the same team. Therefore, it's important for us to understand the depths and the magnitude of what we are covering here this morning. So if we look at the passage, I tell you, you are Peter, so you are the rock, the stone, the pebble. But yet Jesus goes on and says, and on this rock... I will build my church. In the Greek language, we actually have two different words there. We have Peter, Petros, and then we have uh, Petra is the second word that Jesus uses. You are Petrus, the pebble, but on this rock, the Petra, I will build my church. Now, what does Petra mean? Petra means multiple stones. Um, Petra means uh, mountains. It means big rock. Remember the context of where Jesus is preaching this morning. What is he laying eyes upon? A large rock. A large stone. And Jesus goes on and says, I will build my church. See, brothers and sisters, if we get this wrong, if we... Um, if the Catholics are right and we are wrong, this is a huge thing. But if we are right where we are heading and ultimately where I think that Scripture is, is clearly pointing to, then there are a lot of other people who are wrong. They cannot both be right. And Jesus is in this passage and he's saying, yes, there's a pebble, there's a small stone, but I on the big stone, the big mountain, or the multiples of rocks. Peter, you are a shard of a mountain, but there is a mountain that I am building the church. Now, when he says church here, I believe this is the first time, maybe one of the only times that Jesus mentions the word church. It means ecclesia, it means the gathering, or the assembly, or the set apart ones. They would not have the same connotation in these early disciples as we would have currently here today, but, but Jesus is he's saying, I'm going to build my church on this foundation, this big mountain, this big rock, these many stones that are united together as a foundation. But if you've ever built anything, how key is that foundation? If your foundation is wrong, so goes history. Thus, major separations today in, in how we as evangelical Protestant Christians believe and Catholics. So we see here, I would say, and I'm going to give a multiple answer to this because I believe that pinpointing it down to one actually is not complete to all of Scripture. So when Jesus says, what is this rock? Or that's the question that we're going to ask this morning. What or who is this rock that the church, that the ecclesia, that the gathering, that the bride of Christ is going to be built on? First and foremost, I think in the whole of Scripture, we see that Jesus is the rock. That he is the foundation. That his character that his nature, that his, his very will, the essence of who Jesus is, is the foundation that the church is going to be built on. Chiefly, we see this term, analogy, and like what we just, sing, we just sang about, is that Jesus is the cornerstone of the foundation. When you're building something, that cornerstone where you get the plumb line is extremely important because, again, if it is off, everything will be off. 
Have you ever tried to like lay uh, laminate flooring or hardwood or try to do something on a wall? If, if that goes crooked, then so will your wall be crooked. Jesus establishes from Genesis to Revelation that he is the cornerstone, that he is the rock, that he is the level, that he is the stable one, that he is secure, and that he is perfect and properly set. Where do we get this? Psalm 118. We read this in church a few weeks ago, 21 through 23. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders um, rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Later on, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ, or Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul would say, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the cornerstone of the foundation that all of the church is centered on. Anytime that we, we make it about the music, or if we make it about personal preference, or our desires, or some program, then I want you to know that we become off-level. We become less stable. What Jesus does through himself, through the church, is take a very diverse group of people and unites them in one accord that is centered on Jesus himself. You must know Jesus Church membership is important. We're going to get to that in just a second. But it's based on Jesus. It is based on Him. The second thing, or the second layer of that foundation, which again, I think is, is here in this passage, is this idea is that the church is, is built on the confession that Peter makes. And what is Peter's confession? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Do you see that? I mean, Jesus goes on here, and I tell you, you are Peter upon this rock, and I will build my church, and the gates of hell will, shall not prevail against it. This comes right after what? This revelation from God that has come to Peter. Jesus the Son of God, what does it reflect back to? That Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the stone that the builders rejected, and yet the church is going to be built. Jesus is the head. So the, the, Jesus, the foundation, the person, the work, his cross, his resurrection, his return, his creative ability, the essence of who Jesus is, and through that, there is a confession that was made first by Peter and is now being made for thousands of years that even in this room today, you must know that Mission Church stands upon the foundation of this confession. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of the living God. And because of that, all of our lives must be dedicated. We are passionate. We are consumed. We're not just merely fans we are a fanatic for this person named Jesus and we fanatically and aggressively and unapologetically proclaim the confession with our lips to the ends of the nations to the ends of the world we proclaim this Jesus the Jesus of the scripture the Jesus of the word the Jesus of the confession it is this Jesus, it is preached, proclaimed, whispered, the word of God. Jesus has not called the church to be silent. The church is not built upon silence. The church is not merely built upon your good living because you and I don't live that good. 
The church is built upon Jesus and upon this confession of who Jesus is. Sharing the gospel is not merely being a nice neighbor. Sharing the gospel is proclamation from you and I's lips. It is not merely telling someone that they look nicer or we've had a great day. It is none of those things. No, the church is built upon the confession of who Jesus is, Lord, with our lips. That's what Jesus does. It's not built upon the word of God, then it is not built upon Jesus. It's not built upon Christ. Okay? It's not. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but as one of your pastors in our current culture, man, there's a great temptation for me and Justin. And there's a great temptation for for he and I to, to grow this church on our own. To grow it. We've got some guys who have been elders in other places, and, and even in you guys who are members here, one of the, the questions that people often ask in our community is, where do you go to church? They find out you go to church, where do you go? Typically, the second question is, is how many people go there? Right? Every pastor convention I've ever been to, conference, that's the big question. The guy who's always the talking head up on the stage is always a guy who has thousands of people that come to his church because that is how we measure success in a consumer-based society is who has more must be blessed more. Man, it is in temptation. And I can't tell you how many times me and this guy have sat at a table Drinking overpriced coffee that tastes really good. Well, I'm drinking it, and he's like drinking a, I don't know, Sprite or something. Okay. Dr. Pe- oh, that's, you're okay then. Okay. And us going back and forth saying, man, we need to come up with something. Man, all the other churches who are growing numerically in our city are doing this, and they're doing that. Should we come up with something? I mean, I wonder if third day is available Friday. Or let's, man, do you feel that tension? See, we created, even within the church culture, within America, something called the church growth movement, where you can go to the Christian bookstores. I did twice yesterday, and it makes me want to throw up most of the time as I'm walking up and down these aisles seeing your best life now or how to have a great marriage or how to spank your kids where it won't ruin them or, you know, cards and Jesus junk. I step up to the counter. They're trying to oversell me on all this other stuff. Consumerism, consumerism, growth, growth, growth. Book after book is being written to pastors on how to grow this man we've sat and almost in tears asking man do we need to get the right music we need to be more relevant do we need to preach shorter sermons on on how to again have a better marriage is all missing the character and nature of Jesus brothers and sisters we must be very careful in an American church culture to never mistake the Spirit of God for a marketing scheme. Some of you have heard this. I went to New York City on a mission trip when I was doing youth ministry. And confessionally, you know what it was? It was not a mission trip. We stood on corners from the beginning of the day till that afternoon, po- po- passing out granola bars with invitations to busy New Yorkers. That is not a mission trip. That's a marketing scheme to get people to show up to a building. That is not what Jesus is here. Jesus isn't saying become more flashy. Maybe our, our anti-culture or going against the grain is, is become, maybe we need to become more boring, less entertaining, Faithful. How different would that be? The third thing that this foundation is built upon. So Jesus, the cornerstone, 
From there, we have the confession. These are all foundational. These are all small stones that make a mountain. The next one, though, is this issue with Peter. What do we do with this guy? Now, a lot of evangelicals just go, ah, it's not Peter. Throw that out. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus does. Again, the Catholic belief of of Peter being the Pope, though, is simply not here. It is not in the Bible. Even the rest of the the New Testament never gives this idea that, that Peter becomes the Pope. Even by the time that we get to Acts, guess who's in charge of the church in Jerusalem? It is not Peter. It's James, the brother of Jesus, who seemingly is in control of the church. He is the tip of the spear. He's the first among equals, is not Peter, but it's James. Even by the the end of the book of Acts, Peter kind of rides off into the sunset, and the letter is all about, or the ending letter, the Spirit is primarily working through who? Paul. It's not to, to downgrade that Peter doesn't have a responsibility because I do want us to see something. We see that in Acts chapter 2, after the resurrection of Jesus, what happens? Who's the first one to stand up? It is Peter. And what does he do, though? He confesses. What does he confess? Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. So the same thing that is happening in this scene right here, yes, Peter is later going to do that. He is definitely one of those first ones to stand up and and again proclaim after denying Jesus three times, but the Spirit has come upon Peter through the power of the resurrection, giving him boldness to preach this now confession, and he does it. He preaches it. And what's the response? The church grows. The church is built. 3,000 people were added, but not by Peter. The book of Acts tells us over and over and over again that those who were appointed for salvation were saved. It will also say, and the Lord added to their number daily. Did Peter add to their number? No. Did Paul add to their number? No. It was the Lord and his sovereign plan and will that did this. By the time we get to Acts chapter 2, guess what they're doing? They're devoted themselves to who? The apostles' teaching. Is Peter an apostle? Yes. Do they have a responsibility in this foundation? Yes. But they are not ultimate. They do not have ultimate authority. What they say is not equal to the Scripture. They are mere men used by God, and yet God and his leadership and what he has for the church has appointed certain men to be elders and pastors and proclaimers of what? The confession. And what's that confession all centered on? Jesus. It's all centered and all comes back to Jesus. I don't know about you, But I have great relief this morning realizing this. It is not my responsibility to grow this church. And I'm convinced, this is not thus saith the word, all right? This is commentary. This is free. This is obviously debatable. I'm not so convinced that what we think of as being church growth is what this means in regards to church growth. Jesus is is building people. He's building a people, okay? He's not just because the church goes from from 20 meeting in a living room to to 60 meeting in a school or or 10,000 growing in a stadium that does not automatically equate to the church growing because there are a lot of false prophets with a lot bigger churches than this one who has many more numerical people that are gathering in it. But that doesn't mean it's any more built on the confession or on the person and work of Jesus. 
They're teaching the character and nature of Jesus. And because of this, we can know that there is great relief for pastors and for members that it is not our responsibility to grow this. It is our responsibility to do what? Be obedient in the profession of the confession. To proclaim that Jesus is Lord. We see this that is also built upon the apostles where? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. I may have a slide for this one. It says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So what do we have here? We have Jesus the cornerstone. What also we have a layer within that, built upon that, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. I think we can go all the way back throughout the Old Testament whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What do we see here? We see evidence of the person and work of Jesus, the foundation, the cornerstone. We see the evidence of the confession. It, it is uniting and being us joined together into a holy temple. And what else do we see? We see the, the work of the apostles, the preachers, the teachers, the church members, those who are saved. In Acts chapter 4, verse 10 through 12, it says, uh, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by my name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become this cornerstone. And there is a salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven um, given among men by which we must be saved. We see the same equation there. Jesus, the foundation. The confession of Jesus' character and nature. And who is that being done by? The apostles. This stone, Jesus is he. We are built upon him. We are united together. Peter, in his passage, we don't have time to cover all this today, um, will say in 1 Peter chapter 2, he will say, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a royal priesthood. Over and over and over again, we see this in the Scripture. Notice, this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and it's a small phrase in between two commas in our, or, or one comma in our English language. Excuse me, it is two. And on this rock, I will build my church. Who is the I? Come on now. You've been to Sunday school once. All right? Who is the I? Jesus. Jesus Bible Christian. Got to get it. All right? Jesus. It is not Justin. It's not Matt. It's not Bethany. It is not any of us. I, Jesus states, I, God, Son of the living God, the anointed one, the Messiah. Next, what does he say? Will. I, God, will. That means this will happen. The church will be built. And what is the church? He's, he says next, my. So I, God, will make this happen and it is my showing ownership church. What did Jesus do before ministry? Carpenter, right? It's believed, though, that carpentry um, in this kind of area, there are not many trees. Jesus, maybe he did build a few things. Some even believe that maybe he built yokes. It's far better, according to kind of archaeology and history, that Jesus was a mason. Jesus worked with stone. Jesus knew how to build things. He was a contractor. He was a construction worker. Don't miss this. God has an intent with everything. God has a purpose in everything that he does. Even down to the very job that Jesus' earthly daddy is going to have. 
I mean, it's crazy when you're sitting here in your earthly body and you're the one that knows every hint of that stone because before the foundations of the earth, you created it. All Jesus had to do would go, brick! And there would have been a perfect brick, but what is Jesus doing for 30 years, or probably less than 30 years, but 20 years? Chisel, chisel. All right, I would be nuts. If I could just go like that and make it without actually having to do the work, and this is God. And for 20 years, though, Jesus is living this illustration. So when he comes and he says, I will build the church, he not only knows how to do that physically, he could build us one, but majestically because of who he is by as being God himself will do this. He owns it. He is a mason. He is the great carpenter of all of existence. He is the author and the finisher of the faith. Brothers and sisters, Mission Church is not my church. Mission Church is not your church. Mission Church is not a building, but Mission Church is its covenant members, our people here who are part of this congregation, who are covenant to God, covenant to each other to say that we will worship Jesus at all costs, that we will make disciples at all costs, and we will give to the multiplication of the kingdom of God at all costs. The church, you did not come to church this morning. You do not tell your kids we're going to church. No, we are the church. We brought the church with us, and now we are united through the concrete of the confessions of the very Word of God. The very Word of God. Oh, the temptation to try to build this church myself. But how great the magnitude of the realization and relief that you and I don't have to. And ultimately, that we can't even do it. What I believe that is happening in much of our world, the church is growing, but typically it is unseen growth by human eyes. We have no idea what God is doing in the Amazon jungles this morning. We have no idea what Jesus is doing in the cold. I'm glad that God hasn't called me here to the Himalayas because it's cold there and I hate cold, though, right? So we have no idea what, what God is doing in even unreached people groups, but we do know that God has called you and I to go to the ends of the world to proclaim what? Not our message, but the confession that has been one of the, the building blocks of the church since this very passage that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the living God. We come pleading with people to know a person, not merely a concept. He goes on here quickly. The next point is the keys of the kingdom. I'm going to come back to the gates of hell. He goes on here in this passage and he says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We have no evidence in Peter being the first pope, but the apostles did have special authority that was given to them by God. This is not an authority, again, that is trying to say in some way that these men throughout history have received some sort of like ultimate authority, but no, the apostles had centered as we are centered on the word of God. These keys are the proclamation. It's hard in our English rendering here because what it, it's actually getting at is like what God wants done in heaven is going to be done on earth. And the keys there to that happening is the proclamation of the gospel by his people. That it, it both opens and closes, but the very will of heaven is, is taking place. This passage is not saying that we can control what is happening in heaven, but it's actually the reverse. What is happening in heaven, the desires and the will of God are happening on this earth through his people because of this proclamation, this confession, this person. This passage is not ultimately about Peter. It's not ultimately about the apostles. No, this passage is ultimately about Jesus. I will build my church. It is God's mission. It is his mission. It is his church. And, and if you are a Christian this morning, you need to get this because I believe that this is what Jesus is ultimately getting at. This is invincible. Now we have the scripture, don't we? We must be a people that are built upon the word of God. That is what unites us as Mission Church. 
That's why we have something called our beliefs. Is that we have said as covenant members, man, this is what we adhere to. And we are unapologetic for those things as we give hundreds across all of those kind of bullet points of where those beliefs come are centered in the scripture, not merely men coming up with these ideas. But we want to believe who God says that he is according to his scripture. We want to believe who Jesus is according to his scripture. And we're building a lot of churches, calling it church growth, and we're fighting against this. But we're building a lot of these ideas on things that are outside of the scripture. And yet for us, and what we're trying to do humbly, is to make sure that the the keys that God has given us is to to preach the pure, kind of un- unfalsified word of the gospel. We believe that it is through the preaching of this gospel that people and God will save uh, people from their sins. The keys are the word of God. Earlier in this passage, is it not Jesus who says, be aware of the leaven of the Sadducees and Pharisees? What's he saying? Of their false teaching. Brothers and sisters, man, if we get upset of each other, Man, let's lovingly do that over the word, not a personal preference. We come to God saying, man, what, but what does the scripture say? Man, this is what I'm, my gut is saying. This is what I'm being bent to. This is what's happening in our culture. And man, it would be simp- more simple just to kind of go along with this kind of cultural idea and concept. And yet what we do for each other is we bring each other back to the confession, the entire word of God on who this person of Jesus is. And we allow that to dictate how we live. The authority of the confession is the concrete that binds you and I together, even though we are different. We are beautifully and wonderfully made into the temple of God, bound by His Word. So I want to go back to this idea, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, excuse me, back up, and I tell you, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A lot of times when people read this passage, they get this idea of the church and Christianity being stormed by a bunch of demons and the devil. But it's not here. It's not here. What are gates... I have never, I've seen Lord of the Rings a bunch of times, all right? And, and, and they do not storm Mordor with a gate in their hand. Man, that's a mean-looking chain-link fence you got there. I mean, we, we don't see that happening, all right? We don't see people running into battle. You know, we didn't take on D-Day. The boats didn't open up with a bunch of dudes with gates, Right? So what is Jesus getting at? Gates are not a weapon. Gates are used to keep people in or to keep people out. They are defensive. Context. Where is Jesus? Caesarea Philippi. What's he standing outside of? A big cave they believe to be the gate to the underworld. Everything God does. Get this, some of you are in suffering right now. Everything God does has an intent. Even where you live, the house number outside, whether you live in a dorm room or you live in Alverton, or you live in Plano, or you live in Scottsville, or you live in downtown, wherever you live, that God literally has you there, and there is an intention behind even that. These gates, if we look here in the original language, it says, and the gates of hell, the, the Greek word there is actually the, the, it's the word Hades, which is it's often equated to hell, but you need to get this. It, it, its deeper term means death or the grave. So Jesus says the gates 
of death will not prevail. Jesus, standing in front of the mouth of a huge cave, believed to be a place of death, a place where they would chuck men, women, and children into to appease a goat boy, murdering them. Immorality happening all around them. Jesus takes them to a place of of physical and spiritual death. He takes them to the gate of the grave. He takes them to Sheol. He takes them to the underworld. He takes them there and he says, I will build my church and the gates of death will not prevail. Meaning this, something has got to happen to that gate. Jesus is saying that the church is an unstoppable force, that even death itself, that if you cross from life into death, that death itself cannot stop God's church because it's his. That's why we can live with the utmost confidence That's why we can get on an airplane and go to a foreign place or we can go to downtown Bowling Green where you can just be easily shot there as you can in some places in foreign countries. This is what's happening. Jesus is saying death itself cannot stop the church. When you die, the gate of the grave shuts behind you. It is locked. It is sealed It appears to be forever, and yet, but Jesus says that the church, the people of God, will not be vanquished by death. Know your church history. Every time the church is killed, what happens? It multiplies. Every time they try to snuff us out, guess what? It grows. Many people are in woes about what's happening in America. Brothers and sisters, I, am, I have a growing anticipation because whenever this happens throughout history, where we begin to be snuffed out and persecution starts to linger or starts to come typically through mouth first and then guns or killing or stoning or death later, every time it happens, multiplication. The church expands. The church grows. And where does that come from right here? Jesus is saying, though they slay you, though they kill you by the masses, though you will die, guess what? The church, which is more important than me personally and my life, the church will grow. The church will grow, and it is growing, and it has grown 2,000 years. You and I are standing here at... at Briarwood Elementary, thousands of miles from where this was spoken, and the church is here, and we're preaching the same confession that Jesus is God. And the church multiplies, it grows. It's in the midst of these types of places, it is in the midst where the sanctity of marriage. Is, is being questioned. It is in the midst of a place where thousands of babies are being killed every day in our country. It is in the midst of a racial turmoil. It is in the, I mean, you're thinking about bestiality this morning earlier as being a, a, a something that is unspoken about, but yet there's great immorality all around us. Here it was in public display, and we call it watching television. Pornography is everywhere. They have whole conventions in Vegas. Anything you want to do, you can go to a convention and there will be thousands of people dressed up in mascot uniforms kissing on each other. It's not Caesarea. We are, we are in Caesarea Philippi. And yet it's in those places church grows. It's in those places, in those deathly hollows. God shows up. Jesus shows up on this rock. On this rock. I'm, I'm going to take people worshiping goats and, and, and throwing babies into caves. And they're going to be my people. They're going to be my church. I'm going to die for them. 
I'm going to drive for the drunkard. I'm going I'm to die for the sexual immoral. I'm going to uh, die for those who have been divorced, those who have been married multiple times, those who lie, steep, uh, steal, who, who love money and love popularity. Guess what? I'm going to build my church on, uh, on those people because it's mine. And, and from, I'm going to redeem those people. Man, I wish we had some more literature, don't you? I wish we had some more history of how some of these lives are eventually going to be changed as, as those apostles and those disciples leave out from Jerusalem and begin to plant churches in all over the world. So you think you've got a history, but I want you to know your history is not as good as your eternity with Jesus. God takes broken people who have done horrific things. I have done horrific things. I have thought much more of those horrific things. I've had people sitting across from me in my office tell me things that you would not even imagine in 2017 that they've gotten themselves into. And yet Jesus says, it is from those people, I will call them out from death into life. The gates of hell, as they're being rattled, they cannot hold back my people. J.C. Ryle says this, nothing can altogether overflow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions, lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one hand, it springs up in the other. Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros um, have all labored um, in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go on their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many in this world and will break many hammer still. The church is a bush which is often burning yet is not consumed. This is the church. If you're, a part, if you're a Christian, you're a part of that church, of Jesus' church. Jesus has us. Jesus takes the disciples to a place of witness for them to, to see a physical picture of death, to proclaim death cannot stop the Messiah. Death cannot stop the confession. Death cannot stop the church. Death cannot thwart the plan of God. Oh, death, Paul says, where is your sting? Oh, death is swallowed up, the Bible tells us in Corinthians, is swallowed up in what? Victory this morning. You and I can head into a burning place because this world is lost and undone without God, and yet we can go in confidence saying, you can take my life. But I want you to know, the best thing you can do is leave us alone because when you leave us alone, we can come complacent, they call it America. We lay dormant. But when you start messing with God's people, I want you to know, I mean, we're like gremlins. You pour water on us, and we're just all over the place. That's an 80s reference. Y'all need to look that up on Netflix, all right? So, I mean, just multiplying. Every time you think this is going to kill us, everything, you think ISIS is bad, wait till you kill some Christians. Wait till you kill them. God is going to multiply. How do we know that? Because, I mean, I get text messages like every week from my brother Mark, our missionary, one of our missionaries in Niger. And guess what's happening there? Muslims coming to Jesus. Mark looked at me when he was here and he said, being America, what you do, Pastor Eric, or he doesn't call me Pastor Eric, he calls me a lot of other names. Eric, what you do here is much harder. Yeah, we have Boko Haram. Yeah, we've got ISIS. They'll come kill us, take our, our women and children, turn them into sex slavery. But what you do in America is much more difficult because we all believe that we're good. We're all right. And yet, men are being discipled. Women are coming to faith. Kids aren't growing up in a Muslim home any longer, but they're, they're growing up what? In a gospel-centered environment. Why? Because even though you may kill us, death has lost its sting the gate cannot consume us. How is Jesus going to open the gate? This way. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. How is Jesus going to open the gate? He is going to die. How is Jesus going to open this gate? Well, to open the gate of death, you got to go there. And you got to bust up out of that place. You got to destroy death. How is Jesus going to do this? Jesus is going to die. He tells us in this passage, we see a turn in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is up 9,000 feet in altitude, and he says in this passage, from now on, he keeps telling his disciples he must go to Jerusalem. So he goes from this high mountaintop experience, and we're going to see for the rest of his ministry that he is heading downward. Some way, sometimes the way up is a way down, and Jesus shows us that. He descends now for the rest of his ministry into Jerusalem where he will go down into the depths of death itself to destroy the gate. It's going to be a few weeks before I get to preach again, so I've got to get a lot in here. Okay, I'm pretty excited about this. It's so rich. Okay, do you get this? This is what you are a part of. This is the Jesus. This is the foundation. Jesus goes down. Jesus dies. And immediately, Peter, the Pope, gets it wrong. He is not infallible, he is not equivalent to Scripture. They still had this mindset that, what, what, wait, okay, Jesus, what do you mean? Like, we were cool, you walking on water, that thing was awesome, making the bread, the fish, that was cool, but our king will never die. Peter pulls him to the side. Have you ever been rebuked by your kid? Only a few times. You want an immediate response out of a parent. Or most parents. Get rebuked by your kid. The other day we were, uh, Laura, I was, I was laying in the bed. It was chill time. And so I'm watching television and that sort of thing. And Ava was, uh, she was gone to bed. And Laura told her to do something. And I just, Laura goes into our kitchen. And Ava's in a room. And I just hear this little, no. Buddy, I'm telling you what. I'm old. But I'm quick. All right, my first 10 steps, it was like, bam! I was in her room, I was like, she turns around, she didn't have no idea I was there. And I was like, did you just tell your mama no? Because that's my wife. That's your mama. And you will not speak to her that way. You will not, in this house, tell me or your mama No. Peter's just told Jesus no. <laughs> Jesus, he has just rebuked the rabbi. The guy who has just revealed who he is. Moments later, is, you know, rocking in the corner. Oh, I've screwed up. I backtopped my mama one time. We were driving down the road, and she said, Satan! Come out of my son. We grew up Pentecostal, all right? And I want you to know, I was like, whoop, I'm sorry, mama. <laughs> like, I mean, it was immediate. It wasn't Eric Keith. It wasn't anything. We're just driving down the road. I was disrespectful. Satan, come out. She probably let go of the wheel. Jesus took it. I, I bet our car was levitating in the Holy Spirit. Shekinah glory, the blue mist of God filled the room. She called out the devil, and I want you to know, that brother left. I don't think I ever misspoke to my mama again. You can ask her, and she'd probably say, yep, that was it. All right? She put the fear of Jesus in me. Peter. What? What? Get what Jesus has just done. The gates of death will not prevail. What is more scary than the leader saying, I'm going to die? What? All right, this imagery is cool, Jesus. We're at this, you know, porno cave. 
okay, we got, we got the image, it's awkward. Let's, let's mosey on. And Jesus declares to them in this moment, I, you know why the gates of death are not going to prevail? Is because I am going to die. And Satan once again is trying to ruin the plans of God. And lovingly, you must get this, lovingly Jesus calls Peter under the carpet realizing that, 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 that he is now a stumbling block, which is actually found in, in the deeper language here, that Peter goes from that pebble that is being built, the church is being built on, to a stumbling stone because he is trying to ruin the plans of God. Man, one of our biggest issues is when we try to fit Jesus into our little box and control him and what he is trying to do. When we're trying to say, Jesus, I'm cool with you as long as you do this, but if you do this, I don't know about that anymore. We want a life of ease. We want to help God. Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit will we'll do whatever it takes and is necessary to grow the church. God is not the author of evil, brothers and sisters, but he, he will use it. It's considered to be the worst event in all of history is the Holocaust, right? Six million plus Jews died. The church grew. Is it evil? Yes. Was that a demonic event? I would say yes. The church grew. God will use whatever means necessary to get his sheep back home. Good, bad, evil, indifference. No cancer ate up with cancer. Can't have children. Have 12 kids. Die at a, a young age. Some of you are young in here. Give your life to this confession so that when you stand before God, even if it's at an early age, you can say, it is well with my soul. I gave my life. I did not waste my life, but I gave my life to this confession, to this Jesus. Closing, I apologize. You guys have been great. John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Romans 6.3-5, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him and baptized him baptism into death, in order that Jesus as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. And then in the end, the close out here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 through 18, fear not, I am the first and the last, the, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Let us set our thoughts upon the teaching of the apostles, which was the confession revealed by God Himself, built upon the person and work of Jesus May we give our even physical lives. May we sacrifice our money, our time, our talents, all of these things and potentially even our physical lives to be used as a conduit for this confession to go to the ends of the world. College students, you've heard your pastor say this before. I will tell you again, some of you need to drop out of school and hop on a plane before you get married and kids to learn missions from a global perspective. Because once you have kids, that's tough to do. Kids or parents, some of you, you need to stop using your kids as an excuse. And you need to hop on a plane. And you need to go live in a foreign country for the greatness of God, for the glory of God, in the spreading of His great fame and name. Some of you are heading toward retirement. And you think you're going to slow down. But maybe what you need to do is 
stop doing the job you once did and go give your quote-unquote retirement to an unreached people group for the spreading of the gospel. Some of you need to go plant churches. Some of you need to adopt kids. Some of you need to foster kids. But all of us need to be completely dedicated by His grace and His mercy to this person named Jesus with the confession of who He is ever on our lips in preaching and teaching in the same way that these apostles did as well. Let us give our lives to that cause. Let's pray.